That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 81. It's titled, When Booms Turn to Bust. When my son, Brett, turned 10, I gave him the choice of traveling anywhere in the world as long as we could get there by frequent flyer miles. And since most of my miles were at Delta, that sort of limited where we could go, where Delta or at least one of their partners could fly. Brett chose Australia because at that time he was fascinated by Steve Irwin, the naturalist, the explorer, the zookeeper who lived and his zoo was on the eastern coast of Australia. Looked for frequent flyer miles, found a pretty indirect route. We flew from Idaho through Salt Lake to Seoul, South Korea, and then we turned right and headed south toward Australia and flew into Brisbane. Had a delightful trip, wonderful, wonderful country, learned to drive on the left side of the road, learned to appreciate putting beets on my hamburgers, loved the phrase, no worries, which I heard often, and probably one of the most remarkable things we did, besides snorkeling the Great Barrier Reef, despite the sea captain of the boat telling me, David, your wetsuit is on backwards. I had no idea you're supposed to put wetsuits, zip them up from the back. But besides that, we really, really enjoyed our hike that we took. It was a nighttime walking tour in the Daintree Rainforest, which is one of the oldest rainforests or jungles in the world. It's in the northeastern coast of Australia. So it was just my son and I, and I think maybe two other people on this tour. We met the ranger, and he had us put our flashlights against our foreheads near eye level as we walked. And that would allow the light to reflect off the eyes of the jungle creatures staring back at us. I really, really wanted to see a cassowary on this trip. It's a shy, very, very large, shy, flightless bird. But we mostly saw tree frogs and smaller birds. The birds we came upon were delicately rested on the ends of these tender vines that were were essentially they were they're kind of like they were in midair. So they were they would you would we would be walking along and you would see this bird that looked like it was suspended in midair, but it was really just suspended on a vine. And the reason why the birds would do that is if a green tree python or another snake started approaching the bird, it would shake the the branches, which would shake the vine. And so the vibration served as a warning, an early warning system for these birds. The, the guide also showed us a lot of other dangerous or dangerous things that you see in the Daintree rainforest. There's a plant called the Gimpy Gimpy. It's a stinging tree. It's got big heart-shaped leaves and these this 
this glass-like silica on its sleeves that you touch. It literally feels like you've you've broken glass on your arm, and the pain, the sting is as painful as a wasp. He also identified wolf spiders, and we learned what well, you know some of the the venomous type spiders. Certainly not lethal, but certainly painful. And when we got back to our cabin, sure enough, there was a wolf spider in our cabin. My son absolutely freaked. He did, he did not want to go to bed. And we, I finally I killed the spider, convinced him to go to bed. He had restless sleep and in the morning convinced me that we weren't going to stay another night in that cabin. So we, we headed south from there. Now, I thought about how knowing how to spot dangers in these early warning systems, it really came to mind in terms of as a reflecting Australia, because a month ago I got an email from, a very thoughtful email from a gentleman in Australia named John. He works, I believe, in the media or, or some form of writer, publisher. And here's his question. He writes, my country has some good times lately. It's enjoyed close to a quarter century of uninterrupted economic growth due to reforms, deregulation, productivity increases, and of course, the mining boom, the latter largely driven by demand from China. But as you have no doubt read and heard, the effects of the boom are fading fast. John goes on to point out evidence the boom is ending and how it's impacting Australians and his investment portfolio. He then asks, how did it all come to this and why didn't we see it coming? And what can a country do? And me, but a humble investor, caught in the middle of it when the boom goes to bust and the good times are over. In this episode, I want to address some of those questions. They, they apply to Australia and what's going on there. And there's a lot of listeners to Money for the Rest of Us that are based in Australia. And I've not talked a lot about Australia. So we're going to talk a little bit about their economy, what's going on there. But more importantly, we want to focus on, you know, is it possible to see something, a bust coming? Can you see when you're in a boom? Can you see early warning signs of a bust, just like those birds suspended in midair can feel the vibrations of an approaching snake? First, it's important to recognize that Australian economy is by no means in a recession. It's absolutely remarkable that there has not been a recession or an economic contraction in Australia until 1990. Now, the recession in 1990 in Australia was very, very deep. Unemployment rates got as high as 11%. But from 1996 through 2008, average real economic growth, as measured by the increase annually in gross domestic product, was 3.7%. So that was the average. Since 2008, economic growth in Australia has averaged 2.5% per year. As a comparison, the U.S. economy grew at an average annual rate of 3% from 1996 to 2008. And so U.S. 3%, Australia 3.7%, so much faster in Australia. And then from 2009 through the end of 2014, the U.S. Has, economy has grown on average about 1.5% per year compared to 2.5% for Australia. So even though the Australian economy is slowing in terms of its economic growth, it is still has some of the fastest economic growth in any developed country. 
Australia's unemployment rate has hovered between 5.8 and 6.2% over the past year. It was at 5% in 2011 at the peak of the commodity boom. And then you've seen a uprise or an increase in the unemployed. But it's not anywhere close to the double-digit unemployment you saw in 1990. So John's phrasing is boom turned to bust. I would not classify what is going on in Australia as a bust. It's simply a, a slower growth economy. And so the question is, were there early warning signs that your average Australian could have picked up on so that no one was caught unawares? And, and there really are. And, and one of the signs is something I've talked about in earlier episodes most countries conduct monthly surveys of their corporate entities regarding the business business climate. These are called purchasing purchaser manager indices PMI. You can get it. I'll put a link in the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. You'll also, if you sign up for the Insider's Guide, you'll have gotten this link, and I'll e- I email that to you every week. And Market, M-A-R-K-I-T, is one of the primary providers of these surveys, and they do, you can read them, the free press releases. They typically do a flash PMI for various countries, like the third week of the month, and then they do a final the first day of the month. So we've just seen the November 1st PMI data around the country. In the case of Australia, there's another provider, so but you can get the data for free, and it came in. This, for the most recent PMI data, came in just above 50. So it, in fact, it might even have been 51 this time. And so what, but what's interesting with this PMI data with Australia is the Australian economy slowed during the Great Recession, but did not actually contract, unlike most other countries in the world. And then you had the PMI so it was below 50. It went well above 50 in, in 2009. But then in 2010, PMI fell below 50 again, which was unusual because you didn't see that in other developed countries. And it stayed there most of the time until late 2014. Sometimes it would go a little bit above. But the general trend was below 50. Now, this corresponded to the peak in commodity prices. And and one of the things with Australia is 50%, more than 50% of their exports are commodities. The John references it. There was heavy, heavy investment in mining infrastructure to produce and be able to extract commodities that were most of which were sold to China, who had a voracious appetite for these commodities. But it peaked, and it peaked in 2010, 2011 period, and it definitely showed up in the survey for Australia. And, and that should have been an indication for the average Australian that something had changed. And, and it particularly started, you know, so these, these are surveys of businesses, and, and one thing that would have been reflected is what is known as the terms of trade, where which you compare is, you know, what is the price a country is getting for its exports versus what it's paying for its imports? And because commodity prices were so high, there's a pretty big gap. And so if you're if you're selling your exports 
for way more than your you're having to pay for imports that falls to the bottom lines of businesses and businesses good but when commodity prices started to to fall and that started to impact businesses and as they, the the statisticians went out and surveyed the businesses that started to reflect in the data so when we talk about how can you identify a bus term to boom when it comes to the economy it's very very simple just look once a month to see you know what is the trend in the PMI data what what are businesses saying in terms of the surveys now you know it can bounce around some every month but generally like in this case it was generally below 50 for for months and when i say 50 i, I guess i should explain and i've explained this in earlier episodes generally the way these these surveys are normalized so 50 and above suggests the economy is expanding and so there is just more of the respondents to the survey say times are good, things are doing well with their businesses. When when it's below 50, it says most, more, more than 50% of the respondees suggest that conditions are deteriorating. So this was one warning sign. Now, what there, there, there are certainly others you can monitor. You can look at leading indices. But what was interesting about Australia is even though the economy was slowing, the behavior of households and businesses didn't change. House business debt as a percent of the the economy continued to increase, as did housing or household debt, most of which was used to, to buy houses. So we've had four years of slowing economic growth, not as uh, not the accelerated pace we've seen from Australia. Yet, the housing market is still booming. And I talked about the Australian housing market back in episode 43, which I did in What Drives Home Prices this past February, February 2015. Home prices through June, year-over-year increase in the Australia Established House Price Index was 10.5%. Housing prices are are pretty close to an all-time high. And household debt as a percent of disposable income. Disposable income is income after taking out taxes. So disposable income, household debt, 194%. All-time high for that also. You compare that with the U.S., the U.S. household debt as a percent of disposable income is 107%. So the Australian debt levels as a percent of income is is twice as high as the U.S. Now, the U.S. household debt to disposable income peaked right before in 2007 at 132%, and since you've had a period of deleveraging. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Now, what, what does debt do to economic growth? Well, when you, when you borrow, you are accelerating future spending into the present. It tends to boost economic growth. And you've had a period of, of debt increase in really since 1990. There's an article I saw by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, I'll link to in the show notes, where they talked about how debt has tripled in the past 25 years. The article said average mortgage debt as a proportion of property values has almost tripled over the past 25 years, rising from 10 to 28%. In 1990, the average household debt represented less than six months of annual income. Now that has tripled to the average debt represents 18 months of annual income. And the Reserve Bank of Australia is, is certainly aware of this. This is a quote from a speech this past April 2015 by RBA Governor Glenn Stevens. He says, It's hard to escape the conclusion that Sydney prices up by a third since, this is home prices since 2012, look rather exuberant. Governor Stevens goes on to say, The conduct of monetary policy can't allow, the, can't allow these financial considerations to dominate the real economy completely, nor can it simply ignore them. A balance has to be found. And this gets back to, to John's question. What, what can a country do when it sees a boom turn to bust? But a more important question is, what should a country do when it's in the midst of a boom, when it appears to be some, uh, certainly a boom, if not a bubble? When you look at housing prices in Australia, particularly in Sydney and perhaps in Melbourne, relative to home prices around the world, Australia has some of the highest home prices in the world. Australian households are have much higher debt levels than other developed nations. The question is, should the central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, burst the bubble or try to at least control it. Certainly one thing government can do to, is to see if there are distortions 
that are driving the acceleration in debt, the rise in home prices in the U.S., the housing boom. There were distortions. There was a lack of enforcement of regulations. There was allowing the banks to take on too much leverage. And the the deregulation that occurred a decade earlier certainly had an impact. In the U.S., there were distortions, there, were, there was dishonesty, but there was also mania. Where our farm is located in Teton Valley, Idaho, we, this is right on the other side of the Tetons, they have an 80-year supply of subdivision building lots that were approved by the Planning and Zoning Board. And many of those lots were approved after national home prices had peaked in the U.S. and had started to decline, yet they're still churning out building lots because, one, they did not have the code in place in order to better manage the growth, but you also had all these people that wanted to cash in in the boom, and it definitely turned to bust. When there is a boom, you can, you can tell. You can tell. You can look at it in terms of of what your neighbors are doing. You can look at it in terms of debt levels. Are the debt as a percent of the economy, is it accelerating dramatically? You can look at valuations of assets to see if they are above average. Those are all early warning signs that you can make adjustments. And, And so, you know, what should the central bank should, in my opinion, try to diffuse the bubble. The The Reserve Bank of Australia is meeting on November 3rd, the day that this podcast episode is released, deciding whether they should reduce the interest rates, the monetary policy rates. In some ways, it argues, no, don't, because the economy isn't by any means contracting, and there's still an acceleration in debt. And so you actually, if you lower the, the interest rates, that potentially could motivate more households to take on even more debt because the cost of servicing that debt is falling. So what do you do individually when you see these things? Well, you reduce risk. You, I wouldn't buy a home in, in Sydney right now. I'd rent. When you look at price to rent, it's much more affordable to rent. Now, I've gotten emails from, from those that, have, that still kind of want to buy a home in Australia, but I would be wary because when you have income growth is slowing for households, yet the debt levels continue to increase, there needs to be, it needs to be adjusted in the way that it adjusts is there's a deleveraging. We saw it in the U.S., and the way you see it is housing prices decline. No, I'm not saying Australia is heading into a recession, but it certainly does seem like there needs to be a period uh, of deleveraging. And so, you know, as in, if I was living in Australia, I would take less risk. I would take less housing risk. I potentially would take less stock market risk if I saw the, the contraction worsening or the, the slowdown worsening, if you saw PMI, for example, go back below 50, right now it's above 50. And I would look at valuations and decide, you know, are valuations excessive or not? 
How is the Australian stock market currently valued? Well, right now, when I look at this, is as the beginning of November 2015, the earnings yield on the Australian MSCI index is 6.5%. Earnings yield takes the earnings of companies, divides it by the overall price. So it's the inverse of the price to earnings ratio. 6.5% is a more attractive valuation than the overall global stock market. The MSCI All Country World Index has an earnings yield of 5.3%. The U.S. is is even more expensive at 4.9%. So relative to other countries, Australian stock market is cheap, but relative to its own history, that 6.5% earnings yield is about average. In fact, it's a little little, uh, more expensive than average. The dividend yield at 5.1% is more attractive than average. Cash flow yield is a little more expensive than average. But when you look at the Australian stock market, it, it's not overvalued. And so I would, if I was in Australia, I'd probably continue to have exposure to the Australian stock market based on whatever my target allocation is. The bottom line is when we're looking at whether an economy, whether we're in a boom, a bubble, or a bust, you can look at a number of indicators. You can look at certainly what some of the PMI data or some of these economic indicators. And you don't have to be a skilled economist to look at it. Look to see if PMI is above 50 or below 50. You can look at debt levels and whether they're increasing or not. The debt is a percent of the overall economy. And, and you don't have to be an economic expert to, to figure that out, to whether you see if there's there's a debt bubble. You can look at the value of of housing prices, both locally and nationally, and to see how individuals uh, are reacting. And in terms of, you know, what's price to rent, what is price to income in terms of housing. And then look at what your neighbors are doing, what your friends are doing. I remember when I was realized, I mean, I had a number of indicators, but one indicator or tell I remember in terms of the housing bubble that it had got way out of control in the U.S. is in Idaho, there was a couple that had moved here from Kentucky to go to school. And I asked him how, we just got to talking, how he was affording to go to school because he had he had young kids and he had gone back to school. He was able to go to school because about a year earlier, he had just driven from Kentucky down to Florida and bought a couple housing lots without even seeing what they were. I mean, just went to the housing, the one of the real estate development offices, I'll take this one and this one, didn't even go look at them. Just bought them, drove back to Kentucky, sold them a year later for a, a, a huge profit. But when you have individuals that aren't even in the housing business driving across the country to buy a housing lot unseen, that's a housing bubble. That was in 2004, you know, about a year before the overall market peaked. It was pretty close to the top. But as an individual investor, you can monitor those things. You can't invest in a vacuum. Yep, buy and hold is great, but don't do it completely ignoring what's going on in the overall world. Understand what valuations are. Understand what the economy is doing and monitor debt levels. At some point, the piper has to be paid and debt accelerates future spending into the present and it accelerates economic growth into the present. And at some point, 
economic growth slows when debt levels get too high. And that's exactly what you're seeing in Australia. The debt levels have gotten too high, both in Australia and China, and it has resulted in a slower growth economy. Not by no means a contraction yet, but certainly slower growth. I haven't really discussed China much in this episode, but that's having a huge impact on Australia. About 8.5% of Australia's GDP is due to mining, much of that for iron ore and other commodities which are sold to China. China's miracle invest economic growth has been driven by debt-fueled investment in infrastructures, buildings, and other projects, some of which were needed, many of which were not. And the dramatic increase in investment in debt was subsidized by households who were given deposit rates on their their bank. Their interest rate on their bank deposits were well below inflation, and that allowed banks to lend to corporations at attractive interest rates, and household income just didn't keep up. Now the the Chinese government recognizes you just can't have an economy that is just so dependent on investment. You need much of the economy driven by household spending on goods and services. And so the only way to get the economy less dependent on investing is to by corporations is to increase household income. Household income growth needs to grow faster than GDP growth, but since the it's been investment led GDP growth. You, in order to, it's a very very difficult transition, and that transition is resulting in overall slower economic growth. It just has to based on how the numbers work, but it also means a less, not so much less demand for commodities, but certainly the rate of increase in demand for commodities has slowed, and that has had an influence on commodity prices. That's why commodities peaked, those prices peaked in 2011, and I believe we're in a at least a decade or more commodity bear market. And so this, is, this, this transition is not something that's going to change overnight. This is a long-term transition, and it will have a long-term impact on Australia's economic growth. So I, I don't anticipate economic growth in Australia to increase at, at that 3.5% rate anytime soon. It's going to be slower because of the high debt levels and because it's just commodity prices just aren't going to rebound. That's my opinion. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. Also, that's where you can sign up for an insider's guide. I'll email those show notes to you weekly and email you a summary article. Many of the statistics that I shared today, such as PMI, such as market valuations, I have on the Money for the Rest of Us hub. I use that data to decide how my assets should be allocated. And members of the hub, there's well over 200, they use that same data for that to adjust their asset allocation. I've just added model model asset allocations to the hub. And then in the next couple of weeks, I'll be adding implementation strategies. Here's a model allocation. Here's the percentage in global stocks, global bonds, real estate investment trust, and other asset classes. What's the expected return of that model allocation? And how should I invest it? Which Vanguard funds would allow me to get exposure? Which ETFs and, in some cases, which active mutual funds? So that is available. If you have an interest, you can explore that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. 
Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.